Let's pray, shall we? Father, we just thank you for this time to give it today. Lord, we just thank you for your presence. And Father, we thank you for the, uh, the fellowship of the saints. Father, we, we just sometimes just don't realise the power of what it is to be the body of Christ. And so, Father, we gather and we're just so thankful for your life. It's in, in each one of us that corporately come together. And Holy Spirit, I just pray your presence here, just anoint these words as I just share them this afternoon. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We are going to be doing a little bit more worship after this, my message today. So, but beginning John chapter 3. No, John chapter 12, <laughs> verse 3. Mary took a pound of very costly perfume made of pure spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. It's interesting, all four Gospels give an account of Jesus being anointed by a woman as an act of worship. And in all four accounts, the woman is criticised for the extravagant uh, act of worship that she carried out. And, but also, in all four Gospels, she's commended by Jesus. This is the fourth week, uh, sorry, third week, as we journey through the week that was. The week which is known as Holy Week in the Christian calendar. It's a time where we're taking snapshots of some of the events of this incredible week as more and more as, as we begin to see who, who truly Jesus is. So the Holy Week is that week that began and leads up to his crucifixion. And where we're at at the moment is Jesus has reached his goal in coming to Jerusalem. And there's a sense of both excitement and, and foreboding in the air. Expectation, because now Jesus is in Jerusalem. And, and unlike any other time that Jesus has, has visited the city, many of his followers feel something incredible is going to happen. That this is when Jesus is going to get anointed as king. And as you remember, it began, this week began with the very fact of him coming into the city and his followers proclaiming, Hosanna, the king has come. And so there's this real sense of anticipation. But there's also the sense of foreboding because all of the death threats and danger that's been involved. And uh, so Jesus is staying with his dear friends, Lazarus, Martha and Mary, in a little village called Bethany, which is about three kilometres outside of Jerusalem, up on the Mount of Olives. And uh, Jesus really, if you read the Gospels, didn't particularly like staying in Jerusalem any time. He, he, he used to come to Jerusalem a couple of times of the year, but he wouldn't stay in the city. Generally, he would stay with his friends. He'd stay outside in Bethany. And uh, so this is what he's doing again this time. And of course, Lazarus, the, the, who he's staying with, is the one whom Jesus raised from the dead after being in the tomb for three days. And uh, strange as it may sound, that when Jesus did raise Lazarus from the dead, it actually intensified the death threats against Jesus. The principalities in power in Jerusalem saw Jesus as even more of a threat. And so raising Lazarus from the dead, after that, Jesus withdrew from public ministry for a short while. There's actually a period of time where Jesus withdrew. We're told about this at the end of the story of raising Lazarus, which is in the preceding chapter, John 11. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness in a city called Ephraim. And there he remained with his disciples. In other words, Jesus took a little bit of time out 
and laid low. He was out of the public eye for a season on the other side of the Jordan. But now it's time and he's come to Jerusalem. This is the final, count, uh, the final showdown. It's the final confrontation where he's gonna be crowned as king. And he knows that this is gonna happen. And so he arrives in Bethany. He sets up base at the house of the three siblings, Lazarus, Martha and Mary. And from there over this week, he's gonna constantly make public appearances in Jerusalem. And this is gonna set into motion the events that are gonna result in his crucifixion. And the incredible thing is Jesus understands this. And, and there's a sense of, of awareness of what's going on. And, and we've already looked at Monday where he came in and he, he upset the, t- he actually stopped the sacrifices in the temple, portraying what was gonna happen in 40 years time, that what would end, the, there no longer would there need to be sacrifices made in the temple ever again, because he was gonna be the ultimate sacrifice. And so the, the sense of, of anxiety is rising in the city. And you have to remember this is in the context of, of the fact that a city that's around about 70,000 people now have over 300,000 Jews in there, all coming to celebrate Passover. And, so the, and at the same time, you've got at least 2,000 Roman guards who have come into the city. And so the, it's just like, it's a, at the best of times, it's like a, a, um, a, a piece of dynamite to be lit. And amongst all this comes Jesus who is just causing even more anxiety and anxiousness. We need to understand all this going on. It's, it's an incredible dynamic. And I'll, I'll pick up a little bit more on that next week when we talk about Gethsemane. But tonight, Jesus is having a lovely dinner. He's having a meal with his friends. It, it's actually a dinner. It's a feast in honour of Jesus. And, and John who talks about, or as I said, all four Gospels talk about it, but John in his telling of the story mentions five people by name. There's Jesus, who's the central figure of the dinner. There's Mount Martha, Lazarus, Mary, and Judith. So Jesus, as I said, is already is the, the center, central figure of the supper. It's given in his honor. There's Martha who serves There's Lazarus who sits at the table with Jesus. There's Mary who worships. And there's Judas who criticizes. Within the context of what's going on, there's this lovely dinner. Jesus is reclined at a table. And Mary comes in and anoints his feet with about 500 grams of extraordinary expensive perfume. We're told that this perfume is made from spikenard, which is actually, uh, uh, comes from Nepal. It's, it's a very rare, expensive um, perfume. And we're told it, it, it costs about 300 denarii, which probably doesn't mean a lot to most of us. In one of the other Gospels, we're told that it's almost a year's salary of a, of a common labourer. So most, most commentators estimate it between thirty dollars and $50,000. So think about that. A, a, a bottle of perfume costing in excess of $30,000. I mean, that's pretty mind-boggling, you know? I mean, I used to sell perfume in my pharmacy. The most, I ex- most expensive perfume I sold was one called Worth, which sold for $500 for a teaspoon for five mils. And we thought that was expensive. But this, 40, 30, 40, $50,000. And I mean, you know, straight away when I say that, you think, well, there's got to be something wrong with 
spending that much on perfume, you know what I mean? It's just there. But here's this woman, Mary, she comes and she anoints the feet of Jesus. And then she kneels and she wipes his feet with her hair. And the house is, is filled with this fragrance of this incredible perfume. Which when you think about it, it's quite ironic because a few months earlier, Lazarus was in a tomb. And when Jesus said, roll back the stone, the sisters are saying, no, don't do that. They were worried about a smell. <laughs> they were worried about a smell. And now their house was filled with a smell. But it was a beautiful smell. It was a fragrance. But Judas criticizes her. And as the media spoke, you know, why have you wasted this? This could have been sold and given to the poor. And you might anticipate that Jesus would confirm that. I mean, it would be in keeping with what Jesus has done. But surprisingly, Jesus defends her and even commends her. And so we have these four people interacting with Jesus. And I want to look at each one of them. So the first one is Martha. And Martha serves. You know, I mean, God bless Martha. Amen. I'm a pastor, as you know, of this church. And I know the church doesn't get anything done without a whole army of Marthas. You know, we all, and, and to be honest, we all need to be Marthas from time to time. We've got to serve. This church doesn't happen without people serving. I mean, it's just how it works. And we all need this aspect of our lives. It's an important part of our lives. We need to be Marthas. We need to serve. We need to serve the church. We need to serve the cause of Christ. We need to serve the poor. We need to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. And so that's so important that Martha, who serves so well, and we all need to be like Martha. Then we have Lazarus, and Lazarus sits. And I was thinking about Lazarus this week. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but whenever the Bible mentions Lazarus, it's always passive. I mean, we never hear one word from Lazarus. He never acts on his own. Have you thought about this? He's always acted upon. We know that he's a friend of Jesus, but we're not given any picture of that. We never hear Lazarus talking. He's entirely passive. Say, what do we know about him? That he's a friend of Jesus. What does that mean? We don't know. All we do know is that he got sick. And that's something you don't do. It's not you making that choice. It comes upon you, you know what I mean? You're a passive patient when you get sick. Then he dies. Well, that's pretty passive. He just dies. Then he's dead. And so what happens? He gets buried. It's not something you kind of do yourself. (laughs) So, so far, I mean, here he is. He hasn't done a darn thing yet. (laughs) You think about it. And now he's in the tomb. And what's he doing there? He's just laying there. One day, two days, three days. The guy's not doing anything. But then Jesus comes and he rolls away the stone and he says, Lazarus, get up. And he's raised. And this is again, not him acting on his own. He's raised by the word of Christ. And he comes out of the tomb. Jesus calls him out. And what does Jesus say? Loosen him. Let him go. Because Lazarus can't even do that. (laughs) He is entirely acted upon. He never acts on his own. And so the last time we read about him in the Bible, what's he doing? He's sitting with Jesus. Again, he's in a totally passive position. He's not active. He's not serving. He's just sitting. But you know what? In many ways, we're all Lazarus too. I mean, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We can't save ourselves. And Jesus comes, right? He comes to us. And he says, you know, Ian, come forth. 
And he calls us. And we've been raised. We've been raised to newness in life. And I've got to say, part of the Christian life, we need to learn to, and sometimes this is a little bit hard in our modern world, is we need to learn to sit with Jesus in contemplative prayer. Just learning to sit with him. And just be, that wouldn't be Bev's phone, would it? I don't think that could have happened to a nicer person <laughs> after all the cheeks she gave me last night. <laughs> but you know, we need to learn to sit in this place of, of passivity in the sense of sitting with Jesus and enjoying him. We really do need to learn to be like Lazarus, just taking time where we just remove ourselves from the hustle and bustle of everything and focus ourselves on Jesus and enjoy him and receive from him. So we all need to be like, like Lazarus at times. Then there's Judas, and I've already mentioned him, and he slanders. He slanders. And this is the one we're not to be like. <laughs> we're not to be like Judas. I mean, Judas criticizes because he's in the process of being filled with Satan. Hasatan, Diabolos. It means slanderer. It means the accuser, the finger pointer the criticizer. And you know it's really easy to slip into this role. Quite honestly, it's probably, to be honest, I think it's the biggest sin in the church. Criticism. Always being prepared to judge people. And the interesting thing to me is how many people judge people on a line that we kind of draw off It's just below the problems we have. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so everyone who's, not fa who's failing in things that we've got under control, we can criticize them. But everybody who's doing something that I've got a problem with, well, you should just be extending me grace because, you know, I am trying. You know, there's that kind of process. We need to learn to be in a place of non-criticism. But Judas is in this place of being filled with Satan and it's going to be completed by the Last Supper. And it's really interesting because when you think about it, Judas doesn't criticise Martha. He doesn't criticise Lazarus. I mean, Martha can serve Jesus. Lazarus can, can sit with Jesus. But when Mary anoints Jesus, that's a whole different ballgame. And you know, quite honestly, I think in the secular age that we live, the criticism that Judas brings to Mary, I've been thinking about this, would actually find a real resonance. You know, if I, if I changed the story, I mean, we've, I kind of let the cat out of the bag, you know who I'm talking about. But if I kind of changed all the names and just told you about this person who's, who wasted all this money and just pouring out their, their, their wealth on someone else, and you would actually probably be quite offended by it, if we're quite honest. We'd kind of think, hang on, what an extravagance. You know, I mean, come on, it's not practical. It doesn't serve any purpose. It doesn't change the world. It doesn't achieve anything. And I think that there's a, there is a resonance, even for us as believers. I mean, it's in the Bible, so we've got to believe it and go, uh-huh, this is really good. But the truth is, if we actually looked at it, we would be a little bit offended because we, we've lost the idea of, of that, that thing of being sacred, of things being sacred. And uh, we don't really grasp it sometimes. We, we, we can grasp the value of service and we can grasp the value of helping the poor and of, of serving and of good works and, and of even meditation. You know, I mean, it's, it's very into to, to do meditation these days and, and you know, to, to walk in the woods and, to, you know, meditate and kind of fly a kite or whatever. And that, that's cool. And I'm all for those. I love flying kites. I'm all for those sorts of things. You know what I'm saying? 
But when it comes to, to a costly giving of ourselves in worship, of intentionally sacrificing something that is dear to us to give to Jesus, then people kind of get a little bit more, really, is that, you know, it's not really, it's a bit strange, really. And we begin to question the whole thing of being worshippers. But you know what? I tell you what, I, I want to be a worshipper. And what's more, I want to actually be a religious worshipper. And I use that word deliberately because I know even that fi- some people find that, uh, that off-putting. You know, I'm, 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 I'm spiritual, <laughs> not religious. But I think we need to be careful about that because I think spirituality involves a lot of things that aren't worship. As I said, certain books, meditations, all those kinds of things. We need to learn to be focused on the things of God. And I'm religious in that I worship as God, Jesus of Nazareth, who I confess as the Logos of God, who was made flesh in the, in the virgin womb of Mary, who was crucified, who was buried, who was raised again on the third day, has ascended at the right hand of the Father, is seated at his right hand, and who is God, a very God. And that's who I worship. And I think sometimes we forget that and we get caught up in the emotions of how we feel rather than looking at whom we worship. In fact, I think we have made almost a, and this might be a little bit controversial, a God of worship because worship is now so kind of, you know, um, you can turn worship radio on, you can watch where you do it, that we got so caught up in the worship. And, and quite frankly, a lot of that is actually how we feel emotionally and how we feel, rather than it being about whom we worship. And we need to keep very front and center that we worship Jesus Christ, Son of God. That's radical stuff, but it's true. So we need to learn to be able to to sit with Jesus in contemplative prayer. We need to learn to be able to serve. Serving is crucial. You know, sometimes we put it in a bit of a juxtaposition when we hear the story. Well, Mary didn't really have it, you know. Or the other one where Jesus says to Martha, Martha, you know, you're serving too much. Come and be like Mary. Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And so we put it in this position of, well, Mary did it all. And, you know, Martha was kind of lost because she was just merely serving. We need to do everything. We're called at times to be worshippers. We're called at times to serve. We're called at times to sit and contemplate a prayer. All of those are incredibly important. But right, you know, I just really want to push home today that contemplative prayer is good, that service is good, but also we need to be Marys at worship. Mary worships. And it is, it's just, you know, I mean, I've talked about it, but it's just an amazing story when you think about it. I mean, you know, they weren't sitting around in chairs like we do at a nice dinner table. They were reclining in in what I call a three-sided triclinium table, which is kind of like a horse shape. And they would have been it would have been low, they would have been on the ground, they would have been there would have been pillows. This is Oriental. This is Oriental. You've got to remember Christianity is an Eastern religion. Okay, it comes from the east. And it was it was that they were all on the ground, they were eating there, they would have had their hands on on an elbow, leaning on their left hand and eating with their right. Jesus would have been uh, one in. Lazarus would have been sitting next to him. And they would have been reclining. As I said, Lazarus is um, passive. He's sitting there next to Jesus.
Martha's serving him, bringing food, and Lazarus is there. They're carrying on. And um, then, then Mary suddenly comes. And you just think about this. Jesus would have been talking. He would have been laughing. Lazarus would have been there. Mary's, uh, Martha's rushing all over the place, making sure everything's happening. It's all going on. It's just hustle and bustle of a dinner. T- dinner. We don't know how many other people are there, but it would have been more. And um, Jesus has had this good meal. And then enter Mary with this alabaster jar, $30,000 worth of perfume. Now, it's quite interesting. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but Jesus' friends, when you read the Gospels, are actually really rich quite often, which is interesting because Jesus states that economic self-interest is probably one of the greatest hindrances to full participation in the kingdom of God. So he teaches us, and yet at the same time, he has all these, a lot of his best friends are really rich. And sometimes we can get hung up on one thing or the other, but it's just the way the Gospels work. And so she comes in, and Jesus is reclining there, and he comes up behind him, she gets out this perfume, and she just doesn't put a few drops. You know, hey, I've done my Sunday worship, I mean, you know, and, and I've just I've sung a few songs, I've done the Jesus thing. She doesn't just put a few drops, she abandons everything onto Jesus. She pours it all, all her things. I mean, many people think that it was probably possibly her dowry, the thing that was going to ensure that she had a secure future, that she was going to be okay for the rest of her life. But she wasn't interested in any of that. No, no, no. She was interested in one thing only, and that was worshipping of Jesus Christ. And she pours it on his feet, and then she, she drops, and she begins to wipe her hair. You see, worship is always interacting. Do you know that? When you're singing songs, you're getting downloads, and we're interacting with Jesus. And I mean, just imagine how uncomfortable some of the people would have been. How, as I said already, it was, it was extravagant. It was over the top. It was reckless. It wasn't necessary. I can't believe that she did that. The, all the murmuring and stuff, it would have just been, because <gasps> you know, you know, we read it and we see that G- Judas was upset and criticised her, but the other Gospels, uh, Matthew and Mark, both tell us that actually all the disciples were upset with her. I mean, Jesus, Judas might have precipitated it, but we know that Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, all of them were upset about it. They all thought it was a waste. They just kept their mouths shut and let Judas get in the trouble for it or get written up in the Bible about it. You know? So it was there. And I'm sure they would have thought, man, Jesus, it must be about to rebuke her. I mean, her extravagance, it's not practical. It's not pragmatic. Well, I mean, what's going to be doing? But Jesus looks. And this is the word that Matthew and Mark both use. This is what he says about Jesus. She says, Jesus says, no, leave her alone because she's done a beautiful thing for me. You know, beauty is not pragmatic. Beauty is not pragmatic. We don't need beauty to live, but beauty is what makes life worth living. And Jesus says that she has done this beautiful thing for me. He then goes on to say, she's actually anointed my body for burial that she bought this oil for this moment to anoint my body. Now, I'm pretty sure Mary would have been thinking, yeah, I didn't think it like that way, actually. <laughs> yeah, I'm just anointing him because I think he's the anointed one, the Messiah, the, the, the king. And he's the, we need to start treating him like a king. But Jesus said, I'm anointing him for burial. Well, okay, if that's what he thinks, that's, you know. Because you know what? They were both right. 
See, Jesus understood this. He is becoming Christ. You understand this week, you know, teaching in this week, you've got to see it. It's just, this is the final culmination of everything that Jesus has done over his life. It's moving towards this place of him becoming a king. And this anointing is just part of that. He's becoming Christ, the anointed one, through his death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus says, this is part of that process. Mary, it's not just merely an act. He, she is anointing me for the transition to where I truly become king. And then Jesus adds this amazing thing. He says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And here we are. This tells us that the gospel is not just a tidy little formula. It's not three steps or four laws or the Roman road. Because all of those uh, so-called uh, gospel things, you never find a story in them. I mean, it's not like, hey, can I tell you God has a wonderful plan for your life and let me tell you about a woman. I don't know, I've never heard anyone say that. They never put that part in there. But you see, we need to understand the gospel is actually the story of Jesus. And part of the story is that when he enters Jerusalem, he is already anointed for burial. Which means that when Jesus walks into Jerusalem, he does so with his eyes wide open. He is coming to Jerusalem and he says, I'm already anointed for burial. I am preparing my heart to die. You see, it's saying that he is more than just someone who's who's giving an alternative society or making things nice. He's saying, no, 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 I'm God. I'm worthy of worship. I am worthy of worship. You see, there's even some teaching going on right now in the body of Christ that Jesus never expected worship. And I tell you, that's so false. Remember, he hears 10 10 lepers. Nine of them go off. One of them comes back, a Samaritan, and bows down in worship. And Jesus says, hey, hey, I thought there was 10 of you. Jesus received worship. Thomas worshipped him. My Lord and my God. On Palm Sunday, the crowd is worshipping him. You know, and the Pharisees are upset. They're saying, hey, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're, they're worshipping you. That's not right. And he says, listen, if they didn't worship me, then I tell you what, the rocks would cry out. Jesus expected worship. So when people say they, that Jesus didn't, they are wrong, because not according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He expected worship because he knew who he was. Last week I was reading, um, as you, you probably well know by now, I love history, and I was reading about Thomas Beckett. Thomas Beckett was born in London in the year 1118 and he became the Archbishop of Canterbury, which means he was the head of the Church of England at 44 years old. And in 1170, King Henry II tried to make the church subordinate to the throne and wanted the church to be under his authority. And, and Thomas Beckett said, nope, that's not how it works. He refused. He said simply, Jesus is king. Jesus is not here to serve you and your national interests. Jesus is Lord and we serve him. And I tell you, this really, really frustrated King Henry II. And one day in December 1170, in his frustration, 
he said, will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest? And four of his knights heard this. So they promptly jumped on their horses and rode to Canterbury to kill him. The ominous news reached Thomas Beckett that the knights were on their way and they were looking for him and it wasn't going to end well. So Thomas Beckett went into the cathedral in Canterbury and the monks started boarding up the, the, the doors to prevent the, the knights from getting in there so that the Beckett would be safe. And Beckett said, stop it. He said, stop it. And he made this statement. We will not make a fortress of the house of God. By suffering rather than fighting, we shall see triumph over evil. And so the barricades were taken down and Thomas knelt in prayer. The four knights came in, drew their swords and executed Thomas Beckett. And three years later, it's all right. <laughs> it's like, I'm not going to send you out like I did. Oh, here's Bev. Hello, Bev. <laughs> so he's killed. three years later, he was made a saint for his, for his loyalty and fidelity to Christ. And I, it's just a great story. I mean, that's why I shared it. But the funny thing is it reminded me of a time when I, just after I became a, a Christian, and it was an event that really... I'd pretty much forgotten about it actually but it was one day when I was walking home from college and uh, I'd, it was late I'd been at the student council meeting and I was on my way home and it started to rain and, and I was near one of the local, uh, local churches so I popped into the door and went in there and uh, I ducked in and just standing at the back of it and it was quite cool in some ways because it did start the rain it just bucketed down and there was thundering but I noticed what I hadn't actually seen at first was this person down the front a lone worshipper a lady who I actually didn't know. And she was just there. She wasn't aware I was there. And I had the good sense not to say anything. And I just stood there and watched her. And she just knelt. And she was all by herself. And she was just worshipping Jesus. And I was so struck. And how much it moved me. And, you know, for me personally, months earlier, only months earlier, I would have been mocking anything like that because of how much what I thought of Christianity but I'd encountered Jesus. And, and you know, I thought, and I thought those sorts of things were a waste of time, that they were just a rubbish. But then when I stood there and just saw this lone worshipper just worshipping. And, and again, it just struck me, you know, we need to take time to take the focus off ourselves and put it on him. I mean, I want to be like that lone worshipper. I want to be like Thomas Beckett. You know, and I think we each need to, to consider and be like that in this world. You know, I, I want to be like a Martha. I want to make sure I serve. Oh, man, I want to serve to the glory of Jesus. And I want to be like Lazarus to, to learn to sit and, and, and to be passive and just receive from Jesus. But I tell you what, I also want to be like Mary of Bethany. I want to be a worshipper. I want to engage in extravagant, pure worship until I'm in such a place that it generates a fragrance of being in the presence of Jesus from around me, that people know that I've been with Jesus. Yeah? Hey, let's stand, shall we?